0: Before I uh, preach this morning, can I ask everybody to give a round of applause for Meredith for uh, really singing for us all weekend? Thank you. All right, Amen. All right. So uh, again, I would like to thank everybody that has come out for this uh, conference, and you know, obviously those of you who have gathered here this morning to hear me preach. You know, I thank you for that every week. Uh, that's definitely something to give glory to God and praise the God for. I have to say, uh, all the smiling faces and the words of encouragement after the debate last night. I, uh, again, appreciate. Um, Words of advice that I received from Don, even Pastor Steve, uh, appreciated. I really do appreciate everything. So I was going to open up the floor for questions now, but I said, you know what, I'll save that for the round table. That way you'll actually have me, Johnny, and Don to kind of deal with the second coming and tackle that for you if you have questions relating to that. I don't know if you have too many questions. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. We'll deal with that later. So uh, what I will say is last night what you did witness— was an attack on the inspiration of scripture. Simply put, if the time statements do not mean what they say, everything else in scripture is relative. We cannot find definite meanings. Instead, you'll find might, kinda, supposed to be, maybe, might be, could, possibly mean. You will arrive at all kinds of different interpretations of scripture. Even many intellectually honest futurists, if we're going to use that term, would explain that soon must mean soon. I am compelled by scripture to let the verses have their definite meaning and find application afterward, which we did not see last night. Instead, what you saw was taking an application, using that first, and substituting that for the primary application. I have included a quote unquote futurist article in your bulletins this morning, and this will support the idea that even futurists agree that time statements must be taken serious, and therefore, what you witnessed last night was disheartening and discrediting to the position that was represented. Matter of fact, I will turn to one of the quotes in this article I gave you, and it says very clearly – again, this is a futurist article – what it will go to show you is that what people will do in debates and discussions about time statements is they will try everything they can to stretch, squeeze, push away, ignore what the time statement actually means. Here we have Milton Terry, the author of Biblical Hermeneutics, and he says this, When a writer says that an event will shortly and speedily come to pass or is about to take place, it is contrary to all propriety to declare that his statement allows us to believe that the event is far in the future. It is reprehensible abuse of language to say that the words immediately or near at hand mean ages, hence, or a long time after. Such a treatment of the language of Scripture is even worse than the theory of double sense. So, you actually seen both of those represented last night. You've seen double sense, that every Scripture means two things, a bifold interpretation, and you've seen what we'd call elasticizing time texts, you know, really just stretching them to all they can be. I I happen to believe that those time statements actually broke at that point. They, They can't survive that much stretching. So, new heavens and new earth was mocked last night. Well, Dr. John Brown has said this. A person at all familiar with the phraseology of the Old Testament scriptures knows that the dissolution of the Mosaic economy and the establishment of the Christian is often spoke of as removing the old heavens and old earth. The creation of a new heavens and a new earth. The period of the close of the one dispensation and the commencement of another is often spoken of as the last days, the end of the world, as if described as by the shaking of the earth, as heaven and as heaven's, should lead to the removal of all things which were shaken. And you see this in Haggai chapter 2, verse 6, and Hebrews chapter 14, verses 26 through 27. The beloved prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, noted Did you ever regret the absence of burnt offering, or the red heifer, or the sacrifices and rites of the Jews? Did you ever pine for the feast of tabernacles, or the dedication? No, because these were like the old heaven and old earth to the Jewish believers. They have passed away, and we now live under a new heaven and a new earth as far as the dispensation of divine teaching is concerned. The substance has come, the shadow has gone, and we remember it no more. I don't think any of you remember pining for the Feast of Tabernacles, correct? Okay. Or Josephus himself, a first-century Jew, when Moses distinguished the tabernacle into three parts and allowed two of them to the priest as a place accessible to the common, he denoted the land and the sea, these being of general access to all. But he set apart the third division for God because heaven is inaccessible to God. So, is it inaccessible to man? That's, a, I think that's, that's not a correct quote there. Uh, so, you see, me saying heaven and earth, and the, new, the old heaven and old earth has passed away and the new heaven and new earth is here, It's not new to me, it's not new to preterism it's simply what the scripture teaches the sad reality is many do not seek to understand the primary meaning of scripture and who they were written to if we properly utilize this concept called audience relevance, what the scriptures mean to its primary audience a bunch of first century Jews, remember Jesus says I have come to the lost sheep of Israel we must do this before we arrive at our application to us today, I'm not taking your bible out of your hand, I promise not saying it has no meaning to you. What I'm saying is you must know what it means to the person it was written to first and then find application in that. If we do this, we can better understand what's being conveyed. What I did see through the debate was a failure of Pastor Bruce to understand covenant transition or quite simply what life was like for the Jews under law. Quite important when you realize that it was to the lost sheep of Israel that Jesus had come. By his own words, in Matthew chapter 15, verse 24, he says, I have come for none other than the lost sheep of Israel. Truly, if we put ourselves into the shoes of those that lived under law, we could begin to appreciate what it means to be redeemed from law. None of us here have been under every jot and tittle of the law, therefore we don't understand the tears, sorrow, death, crying and mourning, groaning that it was like to be under law. From sin and death that was produced by the law, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7 refers to it as the ministration of death. Instead of understanding this, we have built up our own fantasy world. Many have, not us here, or not some of us, I don't know everybody here. So, uh, instead of understanding this, we've built up our own version of what we're going to be saved from. Our own preconceived concepts, which you've heard many times last night, presuppositions, our own ideas, as you've seen represented last night. And then we arrive at this But is this it? Is this all there is? Am I doomed to a life of physical death and sorrow and pain? You are not doomed to life under the ministration of death. Praise God for what he has done, not for what you want him to do. I call that the unappreciative child syndrome. God has accomplished redemption and salvation through revealing who the sons of God are. This is what is called all creation in Romans 8. This is what they groaned for. I was bewildered last night when I was told Isaiah chapter 26 is horrible exegesis or a scriptural comparison and clarification of Romans 8. I urge you all to write that down. Romans 8, Isaiah 26, go and read that and tell me that that's horrible exegesis. Yet instead of recognizing this reality, many of intellectual dishonesty uh, you know, have clung to this fabricated hope in their own minds, and then you have gaps, gimmicks, twisting of scripture, and even personal attacks to maintain this false hope. Ignoring all that God has done by granting us opportunity to come into covenant with him through Christ is like the unappreciative child who begs for cookies and then only turns around to cry to his mother that I asked for milk. You got the cookies. Appreciate what you have. If you were a Jew under law, you would understand the sorrow and the tears and the pain of living a life where you could not be brought into the presence of God except for a high priest entering in once a year, every year, where you're sitting there fear and trembling are we going to be atoned for another year? If you lived under that, you would understand the glory of God that is revealed when Christ is the once and for all sacrifice, and we don't have to do that any longer. That, my friends, is the gospel. We have opportunity through Christ. Let's appreciate him for what he has done. If one is to read 2 Corinthians chapters 3-5 through 5 and properly understand the transition to the, from the veiled covenant of Moses the ministration of death that was to lead to Jesus Christ, you can then see the much more glory that comes through our unveiled relationship with God. Contrary to the misrepresentation that occurred last night, Scripture teaches quite clearly that atonement and salvation is to come as all things are finished. As Jesus told his disciples in Luke 21 about those days that were to come, when these things begin to take place, stand up, lift your heads up, because your redemption is drawing near. That's after the cross, by the way. Surely, that was not speaking about the cross, as neither is Hebrews 9.28. We have been discussing the transition in our Sunday school class, so I imagine many of you have seen the fallacy of Pastor Bruce's position. We believe that atonement was a process. It started at the cross. When Jesus said, it is finished, he was reciting what a high priest would say when he slaughtered a sacrifice. Therefore, to enter into the most holy place, to offer that sacrifice on behalf of Israel then to come out and say, you're clear. You're good for another year. If we don't believe Jesus has done that, you better go back onto every jot and tittle of the law and be in fear and trembling until that moment occurs. As I saw Dr. Preston explaining this morning, under Torah, was the atonement finished at the moment of death of the sacrifice? No. Was it finished... At the time the high priest entered the most holy place? No. The atonement was a process and was not finished until the high the high priest came out to declare and demonstrate sacrifice had been accepted. The writer of Hebrews twice notes that his description of the atonement process was in fulfillment of the Torah shadows. Thus the claim atonement was over at the cross short circuits the fulfillment of the typological actions of the high priest. And as we talked about this morning in Sunday School, that's what we're reading about in Hebrews. We're reading about how Christ was fulfilling the role of a high priest. And many of us that have been going through Hebrews know we've seen the types and shadows that are constantly being shown to what we are grateful for. Again, it is the knowledge of the opportunity to come into covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ that is the good news. We might call it the water of life, which we see at the end of Revelation And we are inviting others to drink of that water. Come, be clothed by Christ's righteousness, referred to as robes, and enter into the gates that you may freely eat of the tree of life. That's how you gain eternal life. That's our good news. So preterists are without hope. Hmm. So, if I put... Fulfillment in the past, many times I get told that I'm without hope. Well, there's nothing else for us to look forward to. Well, I'm going to give you a quote from James Baldwin. He said, for history is not merely something to be read, and it does not refer merely or principally to the past. On the contrary, great force of history comes from the facts that we carry it with us, are consciously controlled by it in many ways, and history is literally present in all that we do. It It could be scarcely otherwise Since it is history that we owe our frames of reference, our identities, and our aspirations. Think about all that history has done. And if you say something was done in the past, oh, now you have no hope. So the Constitution doesn't apply to you, right? Because that would have no reference to you whatsoever, being that it was written by a bunch of men coming out of Britain. Praise God for all that he has accomplished, past, present, and future. Amen? Amen. All right. As one writer noted, our message is simple. All the promises in Christ are yes and amen right now. There is not this thing of a, we have to have a future fulfillment for Christ and his people. His people have been trying to say this for 2,000 years, but have been blockaded by error which denies that not all promises are for today. Only some of them are partially fulfilled. The message has been trying to get out in history of the church, however, and it is finally bursting upon the world scene. That this time, the Roman world, the Jewish world of the first century, will not only be the worlds that are turned upside down. God is going global. We can see trickles of water breaking through the walls of error throughout the church. But the small leaks, noticeably from the early church fathers till today, have become holes. The walls are giving, the water of life for the church is pushing. And water has already leaked beyond the walls. Those of us that have been participating in Monday night Bible study, we've seen those holes. We've seen the gaps in the wall, and it just didn't seem to make sense in history. They have all these questions, and, you know, contrary to what was said last night, uh, you can find dispensationalism in the early church. They might not have called that dispensationalism, but I'm sure those that participate Monday night would agree. We clearly see that issue with that thousand-year stuff happening and that tr- the dichotomy of Israel and the church well, alive in the early church. It is we who offer true optimism, the preterists that offer true optimism. Not only do we set out to defend the words of Christ and the inspiration of Scripture, you know, soon means soon, at hand means at hand, you know, I just like to take the terms for what they mean. We also offer a true and reasonable gospel. The real reason the influence of secular unbelief is so widespread in our day is because Christians are failing to present the Bible in its own context and offer a true and reasonable gospel. I believe Glenn Hill's charge applies very well to the generation today. Think, Christians, think. When will we begin to hold our preachers and prophets accountable for what they say and what they write? It is high time the mass of Christianity stood up and said, enough is enough. And also, uh, just a, a quick plug here, you can get a Glenn Hill's book in the hallway, uh, he, he deals with the great dilemma of Christ coming or not. Amen. I think it's time for Christians to really stand up and defend the Bible. I must be a bad guy, huh? Must repent of that. I showed up this morning, so I didn't repent, apparently, huh? The recognition that our earth will be here for millions of years will prompt Christians to start thinking deeply about the future. This will change the way Christians live out our faith christians will inevitably become more future oriented and start thinking planning for the future rather than saying oh well god's going to clean this whole thing up we have to rely on the body of christ until christ is formed in you that's what the scriptures say that's what they were waiting for in that century they weren't waiting for a bodily return of jesus they were waiting for him to be fulfilled in his church you want a physical manifestation look around New Christians need to be trained how to live in terms of God's kingdom now. Not some future fantasy hope. We need to know how to live God's kingdom now. As immigrants, if we might call them that, immigrant citizens of the kingdom of God. As Christians accept preterism in the future, they will be in a position to show the liberal, the atheist, the Muslim, the unbelievers, what Jesus predicted did indeed come true. One of the greatest apologetics for the church. Boy, have we missed that one. We've just missed out on that great apologetic of what Christ said he accomplished. Preterism turns the most common arguments against Christianity into evidence for Christianity. Which will be more effective in the long run? You ask yourself. Keep waiting. Keep waiting. A Christianity that boldly proclaims its own self-refutation or a Christianity that Provides an intellectual stimulating moment where you can actually say this makes sense. I mean, you can't go back to a, you know, your own self refutation. You know, he, well, Jesus kind of, sort of, did maybe accomplish something here. Maybe probably doesn't work for me. Doesn't work for me. I believe that the church fathers, as I quoted R.C. Sproul last night, I believe that church fathers could have gotten it wrong. I believe theologians today could have it wrong. Pastors could have it wrong. I believe I could have it wrong on many points, but I do not believe that Jesus and the apostles had anything wrong. Otherwise, uh, you know, just throw it out. doesn't make sense. can't read it. There's no real advice for us. We can't get any practical information because all of it's relative. As we continue to defend the faith and offer a true and reasonable faith, we can truly heal the nations. I believe that. I come up here week after week and tell you that. I believe that. I'll end with this point that we mentioned at our Bible study yesterday. What are we going to do when a Muslim or a Jehovah's Witness or various other naysayers come to us and question the validity of who Christ is? What are we going to say to them when they speak their claims against who Christ is, his deity, as Joe Daniels presented on Friday night? What are we going to do when these people come? Are we able to offer a response? I believe having an answer and being able to stand upon the foundation of Scripture, however shocking it might be to those who fabricate a new hope, is essential to being a Christian and how we revere Christ as Lord. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, it says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Yet with gentleness and reverence, Are we able to do that? Did Jesus fulfill what he said he was going to fulfill? That's it. Thank you.